Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, and what do you know? We're halfway through another week. I tell you, just when Monday begins, we think the week's going to really go slow, and by the time it's Wednesday, it's like, man, we're already at that halfway point. Where did this time go? Well, believe it or not, uh, we are at that halfway point, and, uh, and that's quite all right by me, but then again, it's like, you know, the time aspect. Where is time going? Well, time is moving quick, but as I've said before, and I could say it again, despite the fact that time moves quick, it's up to us as individuals as to how we choose to make the most of our time each day. What I do know uh, with regards to the uh, series that we're um, still in, being the victory with no name, the Native American defeat of the First American Army, you know, we certainly... Um, learned a great deal from the previous episode about just how um, just how badly routed um, the U.S. Army was. And it's probably fair to say that from what we learned that the U.S. Army, even though it may have been considered an army in the eyes of the Washington administration and the eyes of the officers commanding the troops, it really wasn't a true army. You know, when I think of a, an army, I, I tend to think of an army that, okay, it, it may have um, its uh, flaws, but overall, when I think of an army, I think of um, commanders whom have structure, commanders whom uh, provide proper protocols, proper guidelines, commanders whom know how to diffuse uh, problems from within very quickly so that they don't become widespread issues. Unfortunately, this U.S. Army was not a true functioning army. It was an army really where, yes, there may have been regulars, but just because there were more regulars than militiamen, or I should take it, I, yes, there were more regulars than militiamen, let, let's put it that way. Just because there were more regulars than militiamen, it didn't mean that even the regulars were the most disciplined of men. And I say this because uh, back in the American Revolutionary War, George Washington always frowned upon militiamen. He saw them as men who were not disciplined, men who were selfish, self-centered, egotistical. It was all about I, me, myself. There was no us, we, ourselves. Militiamen came and went as they pleased. And they came back into service when they felt like it on their terms. That's what happened here, except that those who deserted didn't come back a couple of weeks later. Once they deserted, they left. They weren't coming back. So this really was, by no means, this was not a uh, true, proper, functioning army. So many of us are beginning to wonder, okay, where do we go from here knowing that we have been badly routed? And what happened on November 4th of 1791, folks, still remains to this day as the greatest Indian victory over a U.S. Army. That Now, as for uh, Custer's last stand, I'm not sure how many um, fatalities happened at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876, but I can tell you this much. Historians have uh, compared what happened on November 4th of 1791 and have also compared it to Custer's uh, last stand at the Battle of Little Bighorn from 1876, 
and there are some similarities. It just so happens that both um, armies were not the best equipped armies. You know, I probably should know more about Custer's last stand, but I'll confess to you all right now that I don't. Maybe it wouldn't hurt for me to read a book somewhere down the road on uh, Custer's last stand. But from what I had read in this book, when I uh, read it uh, back at the start of the of the year, is that historians have compared what happened on November 4th of 1791 and that with regards to what happened 85 years later in 1876 with Custer's last stand. And where the similarities lie is in uh, lack of leadership lack of men whom were disciplined, lack of men whom had proper self-respect for authority above, men whom uh, deserted, men whom simply were not of um, what I would call of a proper um, rank and file. In other words, the men whom fought at the Battle of Little Bighorn did not have a whole lot of military experience. So it just should be a reminder that even if you do have military experience, it doesn't automatically mean that you could prevail over a, a force that you're either not 100% familiar with or a force that you've underestimated to where once you, having, once you are about to engage them in a battle, it's make or break. And breaking versus making has a stronger likelihood of prevailing. So in this upcoming podcast episode, um, we're going to talk about the fallout. We're going to talk about how the newspapers got a hold of what happened. We're going to learn about um, how an inquiry went into or uh, got conducted behind this uh, debacle. So let's get the show on the road and be prepared for our first leadoff question to this um podcast segment episode. As a matter of fact, folks, it's going to be a two-part series. I figured that based upon what I had uh, gathered for this episode, it was going to be hard to fit in the rest of the um, stuff that I didn't get um, to be able to fit into uh, for this um, upcoming episode that we're going to be discussing. So therefore, I felt it was necessary to do a two-part uh, series on it. So here we are going to be discussing part one of two into what's called recriminations in reversal to the victory with no name, the, the Native American defeat of the First American Army by Colin G. Calloway. So here we go, folks, with our first leadoff question. What did General Arthur St. Clair resume partaking in come November 9th, 1791, five days after the debacle, once, once the remaining troops had arrived back at Fort Washington? What do you think he would have resumed doing? There's only one thing that would come to my mind. It just so happens that he resumed writing for the first time since November 4th, the day which saw his arm, the day which um, St. Clair saw his army get routed. So in other words, he, as soon as he got back to Fort Washington, he was able to start uh, getting his thoughts down on paper as to how, what kind of report he's going to have to give to um, those below who will have to uh, relay the uh, news back to uh, the, the Washington administration in Philadelphia. But five days later, once after the remaining troops have come back or have returned, what's left of them, then he resumes that writing. 
General St. Clair wrote a letter on November 9th to War Secretary Henry Knox, which entailed the entire disaster in and around the Wabash River Valley. I can't imagine being in uh, General Arthur St. Clair's uh, shoes and having to write this uh, to write a letter, one that he probably never envisioned he would have to write, but yet someone has to do it. Yes, I'm, I have no doubts that uh, the the fellow before St. Clair, being Brigadier General Josiah Harmer, had to write a detailed letter explaining the defeat at, at the actual site of Kekionga. Okay, and that, you know, it's one thing to have lost 260 men, but to have to write a letter explaining that you've lost just close to or just above 600 men, and knowing that by now at this point that is the uh, greatest loss of life to um, not just so much on one day's battle, but knowing that that was the largest number of um, troops and officers combined to um, Native um, American forces. Pretty powerful, to say the least. So, General St. Clair did write his letter on November 9th to War Secretary Henry Knox, which entailed the entire disaster in and around the Wabash River Valley. We forward eight days later on November 17th, almost two weeks after the debacle had occurred. On November 17th, Eight days later, General St. Clair has written a second letter, or I should say an account, defending the actions he took. You know, it's one thing to write about the entire uh, battle itself and the unfortunate aftermath. Now you've got, he's hoping that he'll this will give some time to where, okay, I, I write a second letter explaining the actions I took. He, he knows that uh, when he comes back, East to Philadelphia that he's going to face probably a barrage of questions, but he's also hoping that even if even if he has found fault, that perhaps officials above him will somehow find a way to um, either exonerate him fully, or if he is punished, it will be a less severe punishment. We'll have to find out, and we will find out here eventually soon. A fellow by the name of Ebenezer Denny would be the individual whom went about taking both dispatches, or I should say letter accounts, all the way eastward to Philadelphia, America's seat of government. Now, folks, um, where this, of course, where the uh, defeat of the first American army occurred was in um Ohio, and of course Kekionga is in northeast Indiana, but we have to remember that, um, as I've said before, and I'll say it again, we have to remember that uh, General uh, Arthur St. Clair's forces never made it to uh, Kekionga. They were 44 miles south. They were somewhere around what's in an actual place today that's known as Fort Recovery, Ohio, which is uh, north of Dayton, and it's not far from the Ohio-Indiana line. So, St. Clair's forces were not far from the Ohio-Indiana line, but yet they were 44 miles from Kekionga, so they never really were able to make it to their intended destination. But even if they did, as much as I hate to say this, even if they did, they probably would not have stood a chance 
at um, trying to um, achieve what Brigadier General Josiah Harmer wanted to achieve the year before, but failed um, miserably, despite being at the actual site of Kekionga. So Ebenezer Denny is going to take both dispatches, as a, dispatches, as I said a moment ago, uh, or letter accounts, all the way eastward to Philadelphia, America's seat of government. Now, folks, you don't think Ebenezer um, Denny's just going to walk all the way from um, the Ohio, from the Indiana Ohio line, all the way to uh, Washington or to Philadelphia on his own? No. Although the journey eastward was 800 miles, folks. The weather played a huge. The the weather is going to play a huge um, role in um, causing Ebenezer Denny delays in getting to his final destination. The weather was so ferocious, folks, that it, it was very ferocious along the Ohio River going east into Pittsburgh. The first leg of Ebenezer Denny's journey alone took 20 days. And as I said a moment ago, the weather was ferocious along the Ohio River, so we're dealing with um, elements of heavy rains, snow, high levels of water along the Ohio River, and ice. When you have weather conditions like this, yes, you're going to have to expect delays. On December 11th, Ebenezer Denny arrives to Pittsburgh. Two days later, on the 13th, he uh, departs eastward to Philadelphia, where he arrived on December the 19th, six days before Christmas Day. You want to know how many days it took Ebenezer Denny just to get eastward to Philadelphia? How about uh, 45 days, folks? 45 days after the battle had played out. That's how long it took Ebenezer Denny to get to um, to get back eastward to the capital in Philadelphia. That's six weeks and three six weeks and three days. I mean, think about it. Uh, there's seven days in a week. Seven times six is forty two. You add another three days, forty five days. I mean, think about it, folks. There's no such things as airplanes, no helicopters. There's no no cars. So yes, he had to. Uh, he had to access a uh, waterway through the Ohio River by canoe or uh, by some other kind of uh, boat that bore resemblance to canoe. But even the weather itself did not cooperate to where he and uh, everyone else aboard the boats had to wait out until the weather finally um, changed course to where um, it was safe to uh, navigate along the Ohio River. So we must be reminded that uh, transportation is not something we can take for granted. Um, and, you know, if we were alive back in the 18th century, if we had to be held back for for more than, say, two days because of the weather, we just had to accept it for what it was. Who is uh, Tobias Lear? I don't expect many of you all to know about uh, this man, Tobias Lear, but that's okay. I know for a fact that Tobias Lear was President Washington's secretary, his personal secretary. We might think of Tobias Lear in today's time as like a press secretary. On December 20th of 1791, Tobias Lear gave President Washington a letter. 
which just so happened to contain some not-so-good news. Washington read the letter, only to enter into a state of rage against General St. Clair per what had been written. You know, we often like to think of George Washington as just being a very um, generous man, a sincere gentleman, and while he probably was a, a good gentleman, we must be reminded that even when he was commander of the Continental Army, he had his moments of anger, and he had his reasons to have those moments of anger. One particular reason that I can think of where he would have had a moment of anger, and he wasn't the only one, but if I had to choose one officer who did have a rightful moment to be angry, was when he learned of Benedict Arnold's defection over to the side of the British. Yes, that truly infuriated George Washington. And for those of you who are new to my podcasts and uh, haven't had a chance to read um, or haven't had a chance to listen into the podcast series I did um, that was titled The Tragedy of uh, Benedict Arnold by Joyce Lee Malcolm, you'll definitely understand why uh, George Washington was so upset and distraught over Benedict Arnold's defection. He wasn't the only officer but given, for one, he was a commander of the Continental Army, and two, Washington went above and beyond to keep Benedict Arnold in the, um, hey, call it, in the overall um, process of being a part of something unique and being a part of um, a grand experiment on the battlefield in um, trying to uh, go about defeating the world's mightiest empire, which happened, but only in the end to learn of Arnold's defection. So if you haven't uh, had a chance to read that, listen in on that podcast series, I strongly recommend that you all do that. But yes, Washington is reading this letter and goes about entering into a state of rage against General St. Clair. What I do know, and this is in quotations that St. Clair wrote in his letter to President Washington, it's the following. Beware of a surprise. You know how the Indians fight us. Well, George Washington is upset by how General St. Clair underestimated the Indians' fighting tactics, or I should say strategies, thus allowing the army to become nearly obliterated. Washington advised Tobias Lear not to share this matter via what was written in the letter with anyone else after leaving the room both men had initially discussed the topic. I mean, we might think of this as, in today's time, as classified information. Is it fair to say that there could be others in Philadelphia who might not know about this matter? It's possible, but at the same time, you know, it's one thing to receive word of news from one person, but then we have to wonder, are there other people out there who've already been made aware of the same event, but they've gotten it from a different source, or they may have obtained it from a different date, say earlier than the 20th of December, 1791? And if they did, some of us are wondering, well, how come we didn't share this with the commander-in-chief? This is where communication can be tricky. This is where communication cannot be um, a good thing. You know, it's one thing to be told by someone, but yet then you have others who get told, but yet they don't always share everything that they get told. Sometimes that may not be a bad thing, but if it's a matter of national security, like what happened in um, 
like what happened on uh, November 4th of 1791, and not all the facts are properly reported or information is properly addressed, then yes, there are going to be um, a handful of uh, red flags, big and small, that are going to start popping up. So for George Washington, it's bad enough that what has happened on November 4th of 1791 took place. But for George Washington, the defeat or this debacle it led him to relive what had what had occurred 36 years earlier in 1755 during the early uh, onset of the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. French and Indian War, where um, I know I mentioned this from a previous uh, podcast episode. I know I've mentioned this before probably from other uh, podcast uh, book series topics, so I'll mention it again, but I'm going to make it brief. In 1755, or July of 1755, George Washington is serving under General Edward Braddock, and Braddock leads an expedition into the Monongahela uh, region of western Pennsylvania, not far from uh, present-day Pittsburgh. Well, it was bad enough that Braddock's forces were defeated, but they were annihilated by French and Indian um, forces. What did the French and the Indians use, folks, in terms of fighting? Did They didn't use anything conventional. They fought non-conventional guerrilla, a.k.a. irregular-style warfare. It, uh, their tactics were so brutal that nearly uh, Braddock, that Braddock himself, not only did he lose his life, but he lost almost a 1,000 or just over a 1,000 men. Uh, less than 100 men survived, I believe. And, of course, George Washington survived. Washington was able to save the day and, and uh, keep those whom either were wounded or had not been wounded uh, alive to where they were still able to come out of the woods safe. Had it not been for Washington's leadership in the midst of uh, General Braddock going down, for all we know, Washington himself could have been a casualty. Um, his uh, Some of his other uh, men whom survived would have as well. It turns out, however, that Washington had known the area well enough to obviously know how to uh, respond to anything unexpected like what um, occurred. However, he did warn his superior officer of how the Indians fought. And even Indians whom were not on the side of, the, of those Indians whom had aligned themselves with the French, those uh, Indians whom I guess we say were ne neutral had warned uh, Braddock that he needed to um, change his um, game tactics, but did the officer listen? No. The highest commanding officer didn't listen, and he paid dearly, not only with his forces being annihilated, but he too uh, lost his life. It might be fair to say that the Indians and the French knew that if officers were attacked first, that those uh, below would not know how to uh, regroup. And I think it's fair to say that we learned that even from the um, from the previous uh, podcast episode when we learned about the actual uh, victory with no name and the results that um, benefited the Indians and the results that um, were of uh, negative consequence to the uh, U.S. Army. So yes, what happened 36 years earlier is really a painful reminder to George Washington. But I'm also beginning to wonder too, can we pin all the blame on General Arthur St. Clair? Something tells me that we probably shouldn't, but we'll find out here shortly in terms of who really is going to be blamed when this is all said and done with. Had news of St. Clair's defeat 
reached eastward before Ebenezer Denny's arrival into Philadelphia on December 19th. I didn't think it was possible, folks, but it just so happens that the answer is yes. News of St. Clair's defeat did arrive sooner than December 19th. An unidentified Frenchman whom had gotten himself acquainted with a group of Indians after the battle went about bringing word of defeat to Vincennes. And for those of you who don't know where Vincennes is, Vincennes is that's in, su- in uh, southern Indiana. Uh, it's north of Evansville, Indiana. It, Vincennes is closer to the Indiana-Illinois line where uh, Evansville whereas Evansville, Indiana is right on the uh, Indiana-Kentucky line, closer to uh, Owensboro, Kentucky. Um, Just to give you a little uh, 101 geography there. So, yes, this um, unidentified Frenchman went about bringing word of defeat to Vincennes just prior to November 27th. And if you want to know of uh, another source, or a bigger source, whom got word of news uh, prior to December 20th, Thomas Jefferson, the Secretary of State, confirmed news of defeat, which uh, had arrived into Philadelphia come the evening of December 8th. Only for President Washington to relay the news to Congress come December 12th. Now, I just find it odd that Tobias Lear receives um, a letter from Ebenezer Denny on December 20th. Of course, we have to keep in mind, folks, too, you know, we don't get, uh, there's no such thing as uh, two and three day mail um, delivery options. We don't have the, um, we don't have FedEx overnight per mail or UPS uh, mail overnight back in 1791. So, when you receive the news of something, even if it's a couple of weeks old, when you're reading it for the first time, it might as well be the equivalent of real instant breaking news. So Washington has gotten already a handful of uh, different reports. But it's fair to say that on um, December the 12th, that Washington probably did not... Yes, he got the news, but it was not actually... Um, It was probably not um, worded in the same way per the letter he received on December the 20th, which really put him into a state of rage. So he's gotten different accounts, but but the letter he got on December 20th, it's fair to say, probably could have been the one that was the straw that broke the camel's back. So once Washington receives uh, the news... And he um, relays the news to Congress come December 12th. He went about providing copies of St. Clair's reports to War Secretary Henry Knox, which included a list of all the officers both killed and wounded. (laughs) And that's obviously not a um, pleasant uh, number, to say the least. December 19th saw Washington's message, including reports and list of officers' status get recopied, in a strongly worded critical attack narrative in Boston, Massachusetts. And shortly afterwards, many other Eastern newspapers began reporting accounts of St. Clair's defeat. Gosh, you know, it's 
it, it might be awkward enough when one or two newspapers report of something like this, uh, given that the magnitude of what occurred, it's pretty high. On, on a scale of 1 to 10, we're going to have to say that St. Clair's defeat is a 10. But once you start getting um, multiple cities reporting the newspaper, reporting this event, and not every city in 1791 has just one newspaper, there are some cities like Boston, Philadelphia, New York, um, Charleston, South Carolina, with high um, population numbers, where there's obviously going to be more than one newspaper uh, company in town. So uh, Philadelphia, with 40,000 people, you're probably going to have at least five or six newspaper uh, companies. That's what I'm thinking. I could be wrong, but obviously it's going to be greater than two. So think of how many people are going to have access to the paper and um, can actually take the snooze in. So when it does get published, folks, even though the event itself is a couple of weeks old, reading it, reading about it for the first time, it is instant breaking news. Is it fair to agree that the United States in 1791 was lacking military and industrial powers? Yes. Considering just how badly routed General St. Clair's forces ex experienced on November 4th, as nearly 600 men, officers and troops, died in the midst of an enemy whom was far superior militaristically despite fighting their opponent with non-conventional tactics. Think about it, folks. The Indians have been fighting irregular uh, warfare or guerrilla style. They probably have been doing this since they first occupied uh, what we know is America. This is, I mean, this is how they uh, go about um, keeping out intruders. They're not going to come up to them and they're with their commander saying, present your arms, make ready, take aim, fire at the um, invasives, meaning the Europeans. Sure, they could fire bows and arrows, but they would do them in, in, um, in secluded ways. You know, think about it. They could come out of the trees or hide. Uh, they could come out of uh, the backside of the tree, launch their bow and arrow and fire it at the um, at at um, Europeans whom are just getting off the ships and making their way into the forests just to see what's available in the forests. And I, and I mention this because historians know that when um, the first group of um, settlers came to Jamestown in 1607, when they began navigating through the woods, a handful of uh, Paspahague Indians were um, secretly surprised um, the English and about uh, two or three uh, settlers were um, severely injured uh, by uh, bow and arrow uh, attacks. So we must uh, be reminded of the fact that even when uh, Europeans did arrive, they weren't met with a friendly welcome. They were often met with warfare right away in terms of um, irregular style fighting, meaning that, hey, you can try all you want to establish your presence in unknown charted territory, but just remember who's got first dibs, Remember who's uh, been here longer than you have, and just know that if you keep um, harassing us or keep doing things that we find are non-conventional, then yeah, expect um, surprise attacks left and right to the point where you might just decide to pack up your belongings and return 3,000 miles back home and never set foot again. 
So um, in the midst of, Ameri of the American Army's defeat, many politicians began debating into how and if the government ought to continue funding this war along the Northwest Territory. Kind of like how in today's time we have to wonder, you know, uh, how much, um, well, I shouldn't get any, into anything political, but we hear about stuff all the time where, you know, questions get brought up like, should we really be funding um, another country overseas when we need to be more concerned about issues at home? That's usually what I'll hear in the news, and most of you probably do as well. So, yes, we have uh, politicians, even in 1791, debating whether or not if the um, government should even continue to proceed forward in funding the war along the Northwest Territory. Newspaper editors, um, politicians, to army officers uh, shortly after the battle debacle began, went about conducting their own personal assessments into whom should be held liable. So, it's not just a few people whom are uh, going to be conducting their own personal assessments. It, it's going to be many. And this hasn't happened before, folks, so there's always a first for something, even if it's not a pleasant outcome. Uh, did Arthur St. Clair come to the realization that he would be directly blamed for the debacle? Yes, he went as far as making sure that once an inquiry took place, not to place any blame onto all other officers, including the troops whom fought despite frequent discipline issues amongst many of them. Yes, uh, General St. Clair is right in that he did have discipline, uh, many disciplinary problems with the soldiers, but he also knows that even if he, even if he um, professed his case about the disciplinary piece, it's probably not going to be 100% uh, to his advantage where he could be completely exonerated. General John Armstrong, who is an expert on Indian warfare, trying to think now, where where was he? Was he involved at at, um, at, um, at this uh, victory at the victory with no name? I mean, if he if he's an expert on Indian warfare, why wasn't he in charge? Well, anyways, he's a seven year he was a seven years war veteran. He led an attack on the Delaware Indian tribal town of Kittening, and if any of you are wondering where Kittening is, it's a town in uh, northwest Pennsylvania, uh, just south of Erie, uh, north of Pittsburgh. Uh, Kittening is probably near towns like Girard, uh, Hermitage, uh, Butler, Aliquippa, um, Titusville, Meadville, uh, really in uh, northwest PA, basically. So, uh, General Armstrong led uh, an attack on the Delaware Indian tribal town of Kittening in 1756 in the midst, uh, but in the midst of General St. Clair's defeat, General Armstrong admitted that American fighting tactics required absolute change, which meant to defeat Indians going forward in, in all uh, skirmishes or battles, big and small, It's going to require reinventing the art of warfare, okay? So if we're going to defeat the Indians, we're going to need to employ or, um, or deploy more uh, irregular style fighting tactics. So um, some survivors from, November, from the November 4th campaign debacle went as far as blaming General St. Clair for not sending scouts in advance 
to um, canvas the outlying areas to setting up arrangements where uh, troops could have provided more advanced warnings, which could have reduced or prevented the chances of the incoming disaster from happening. I think all of this is true. Um, there was a communication breakdown on uh, going into the evening of November 4th. One of the uh, officers, a Captain Slough, had informed a Major General uh, Richard, or Be Major General Benjamin Butler, of uh, the of what uh, the troops or, or the scouts had heard. Um, in terms of um, they had heard uh, they had heard gotten enough information to where they knew that something was going to happen. It was just a matter of a short period of time, and the communication breakdown occurred to where oh well you, you know we don't really have anything to worry about because we haven't heard anything and nobody's told me this or that what do you know early morning november 4th all hell breaks loose pardon my french but that's what happened so we do have to wonder okay had scouts been sent sooner and had some arrangements been made sooner there might have been a chance that uh, there could have been a, a reduction in the loss of life but I still would have to say that even if there had been some better preparations made, that even if there had been a reduction in loss of life, the Indians still would have prevailed. I mean, that's just, you know, 50-50 hindsight is always uh, great, but it's not always um, a guarantee that even if you do have 50-50 hindsight, that, that even your strategies will prevail in the midst, in the midst of dealing with an enemy whom does not uh, fight in uh, conventional ways like you do, being that of the U.S. Army. The newspapers went as far as printing rumors of increasing Indian war to depicting accounts of Western settlers' imminent danger at being vulnerable to new waves of Indian attacks. Opponents against Indian war, or I should say Indian wars, went about writing newspaper articles under pseudonyms. And pseudonyms, folks, are fictitious names. And this way it protects those writing, those individuals writing the articles. It protects them not only so much from an identity standpoint, but it also might protect uh, their livelihoods as well, because if you know they um, mention their real names in writing the article, uh, for all they know, that not only could they, not only could, the individual be a subject of a of a death threat, but perhaps their family could be sub subjected to violence and death threats as well. So, when you um, write an article and you want to protect yourself, use a fictitious name. Nobody will probably ever really figure out who wrote the article in terms of real name. So, yes, those whom went about um, criticizing um, Indian War, they went about. Um, writing newspaper articles under pseudonyms, a.k.a. fictitious names, where they denounced the most recent debacle, including uh, taking aim at the government's existing Indian and land policies. One example of a criticism, and it was a scathing one, from the Boston Gazette, uh, the writer whom wrote the article uh, wrote under the alias and quotations of anti-Pizarro, the writer asked the following, in quotations, Who stood to profit from the war? Okay, in other words, uh, this is the way I interpreted the question. In other words, had the U.S. Army prevailed, 
would only a select few benefit from the war's outcome on a long-term basis while leaving the masses, being the common people behind, whom would have little or nothing at stake to speak upon, given they weren't as powerful unlike those with money. Well, of course, it's fair to say that those whom have money are, are wealthy, but when I think of those whom have money at this time, when it comes to land and this um, westward movement into the Northwest Territory, I think of the land speculators. The land speculators are going to have the first dibs on um, land territory, but they're the ones that are going to have the greater say over you know, the average uh, common person, like being Tom Jones and his family, who might be lucky enough to make 12 pounds a year as an average uh, middling family uh, via um, income. The Carlisle Gazette, uh, being that of in uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is uh, located outside of present-day uh, Harrisburg, PA, not far from the Pennsylvania-Maryland line, the Carlisle Gazette in February of 1792 issued a letter from Ensign John Morgan to Henry Knox, only to have been sent to Mary Butler, the widow, to Major General Benjamin Butler, whom died on November 4th, 1791. Uh, the matter at stake had to do with Butler's communication. Did he, or did he not, inform General St. Clair of Captain Slough's report, which featured or entailed signs that an attack by the Indians was credible. In the end, St. Clair realized he lost the battle by not having thoroughly understood his enemy, along with failing to divide up his forces to making an improper choice for camp establishment. Yes, if he had divided up his forces, I, I would definitely say that the loss of life would have been much more, um, there would have been a reduction in loss of life, but even if he had divided up his forces, could they have fought a better battle? See, even that, folks, can be debated. Yes, it's unfortunate that we, we got routed, and we got routed badly. But I'm also hoping that in the aftermath of this, that, that there could be some good out of this. Because the United States is a young republic, folks. We're still in our infancy. We're still um, struggling to pay off existing debts from the Revolutionary War. We're still trying to build. Um, we're trying to build status in the world, but we're not anywhere close to being a, a world superpower. That's going to take another century at most before we can become truly become a, a world superpower. Uh, the debacle along the northwest frontier. From November 4th, 1791, opened doors for further attacks against President Washington's administration. George Washington himself, folks, is a land speculator. And now all of a sudden, he's faced with criticism regarding his military leadership. You know, the father of our country, and rightfully so, but even um, the commander of the Continental Army, the man who kept the glue together, even in the most trying times in the American Revolutionary War, as the commander-in-chief is now uh, facing one of his most... Um, he's facing one of his powerful, most powerful moments as president, but in a not-so-good spotlight. Of course, in today's time, many people would probably think of this as a potential scandal. Probably so. 
but I but the word scandal didn't really seem to um, come about in uh, 1791. But that's not to fi- that's not how do I say it? But we should also be reminded that um, scandalous activity in terms of uh, in politics has been going on since the beginning of time. It's just evolved over time uh, to where um, it's sadly become a norm to where um, anything that is considered scandalous doesn't really come as a shock. We may not like it right away, but when we hear about it, it's like just when we've heard everything else, what else is there out there to um, label as being scandalous? But this that term itself really wasn't... Um, coined much per this uh, book that I read. Now, those in Congress whom questioned the war were primarily Republicans, or I should say anti-federalists. And when I think of anti-federalists who are questioning the war, how about men like Thomas Jefferson? Uh, How about men like, um, I don't know about James Madison at this point, but he prob- but you know what it might be fair to say that James Madison would be questioning um, the war because anti-federalists don't believe in a strong powerful central government they don't believe that the federal government should have too many broad powers because if the if the central government does have too many broad powers they could see that as a um, as a as a means of um, encroachment upon uh, the most uh, fundamental of um, civil liberties, or I should say civil rights. They fear, they fear that if there's a too big of a, a strong central government, that the, that the federal government would um, take away the rights of those whom, um, whom aren't uh, being uh, valued. Uh, so basically, for, um, for the anti-federalists, they uh, prefer really, in a sense, an economy that is more agrarian versus mercantile. But but nonetheless, uh, the anti-federalists have, ha, are not only questioning the war, but they are also addressing concerns behind creating to funding a national army. So in other words, for men like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, why should there be a national army even when it's not... Why should there be a national army in existence during times of peace? Why do we need a national army? I'm okay maybe with the National Army during a time of war, but even that alone, has there has to be a compelling reason for that. So, yes, they are um, questioning the, the role of, uh, of funding a National Army to even creating one. General St. Clair uh, asked for an, an inquiry, being an investigation into his actions, but Washington advised there weren't enough officers of high-level rank status in, in service to form uh, an inquiry court. So... This is uh, where General St. Clair could really be stuck between a rock and a hard place. So how are we going to resolve now the issue before us? I mean, we've got to find some kind of resolution. If Washington's telling St. Clair that that there aren't enough officers available to form an inquiry court, how are we going to move forward? Well, let's learn about a fellow named William Branch Giles. Well, he's a politician from Virginia. And there is a county out in southwest Virginia called uh, Giles County, which is named in his honor. So William Branch Giles, uh, being a politician from Virginia, he int- he proposed a resolution after uh, St. Clair's defeat 
and uh, he served in both houses of Congress. He started out first in the House of Representatives. He uh, requested um, that the President of the United States conduct an investigation into the factors behind why this particular campaign failed. However, another House rep by the name of Thomas Fitzsimmons from Pennsylvania proposed that the House of Representatives be the ones to conduct the inquiry. So therefore, uh, William Branch Giles' resolution failed, but Fitzsimmons' resolution went through, resulting in uh, creating a House Select Committee. You know, we hear about House Select Committees in today's time, but in 1791, the first House Select Committee has been established. Select committees are, st- are, are special committees. These aren't committees that are going to be um, in existence year after year. Uh, one select committee that I can think of off the top of my head uh, was the House Select Committee on Assassinations that was evolved, that, um, that came about in late 1975 into the start of 1976 that, uh, that basically reopened um, the assassination of uh, President John F. Kennedy and uh, the House Select Committee of Assassinations also explored um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, but it was a special committee that um, that had a particular task of um, of reopening um, of reopening a matter that had occurred uh, 13, 13 years later, and the American public were um, was demanding for more information, and so therefore this uh, special committee was formed. Even though uh, that that committee did learn a lot of information, but in the end, uh, the committee was dissolved in 1979, and the committee ruled uh, that President John F. Kennedy was the probable victim of a conspiracy. and And I do believe, uh, not to get off track, but I do believe that he that President Kennedy was uh, the victim of a of a broad conspiracy. But that's just me, and that's a whole other topic for another time. Um, but uh, this uh, congressional investigation into St. Clair's defeat from November 4th of 1791 would become the first of its kind under the new uh, governing document, being the Constitution. The special committee did more than looking into St. Clair's uh, actions. The committee addressed questions about overall authority of the new national government, responsibility of elected officials. <laughs> even that's an, an issue uh, that's explored even into, into today's uh, modern-day world. Executive privilege, whether or not um, ele- an elected official has must um, release uh, over uh, classified material or if he has the right to withhold that information from the public. President Washington met with his cabinet, or I should say his administration, and discussed ter- about turning over all papers. Everyone, included, including Washington himself, were in unanimous agreement that Congress had the proper right to hold an inquiry and request necessary documents. The administration, including President Washington himself, wanted to set proper precedents with withholding um, wanted to set proper precedents, meaning that if they withheld the documents, it would be seen as a bad image for the American people and uh, the greater public. The select committee, in the end, did uh, exonerate General St. Clair of all responsibility for defeat, 
but instead shifted blame pertaining to congressional mishaps regarding delays involving proper allocation of funds needed for the campaign, thus impacting troop discipline and morale along with when the campaign began, meaning that it began much later in the season when it should have been the opposite much earlier. The select committee did not specifically identify uh, President Washington nor War Secretary Henry Knox by their names, but did rule or confirm that due to delays and breakdowns, General St. Clair was under orders from above to proceed forward, knowing that the campaign itself presented many obstacles versus total unification. And remember from a previous podcast segment, folks, even General St. Clair himself wasn't even sure if he should go forward, but yet he knew that he was given orders by uh, President Washington and War, Se- War Secretary Henry Knox to go forward. So obviously he couldn't challenge their authority. I mean, he can certainly express concerns, but if he challenged their authority to where it was very bad, then he, would, then he knew that he would be replaced in a heartbeat. So in the midst of the U.S. Army's debacle from November 4th, 1791, what concerns did war, what concern did War Secretary Henry Knox have going forward? He believed that Indian alliances would expand, which included potential of realignment where existing alliances could join up with the Iroquois Six Nations as well as Cherokee and Creek Tribal Nations. You could have a Northwestern Confederacy banding with Southeastern Indian nations. So basically, folks, the numbers could expand to the point where the, uh, the U.S. government is not just dealing with one or two uh, nations. I mean, they were dealing with three nations along the Northwest frontier. I mean, you had the Wabash um, Nation. You had the, um, you had the uh, Miami Nation. You had the... Um, you had the Northwest uh, nation as well. So you had uh, tribes from three different regions. And now all of a sudden, if you're going to have more than three tribes, you're going to even be in for a bigger fight to where you have to wonder, no matter how large our numbers are going to be, is it going to be enough to be able to defeat an enemy that does not fight in a conventional manner? You really, you do have to wonder now, uh, frontier inhabitants, folks, are already in a state of fear, and you can't blame them, especially if you live in a town like Pittsburgh, being the westernmost town in 1791 America. The frontier inhabitants feared that more Indian attacks were inevitable, meaning the town of Pittsburgh itself was defenseless. No fort, which meant no access to muskets, rifles, pistols, including no ammunition supply. So if you don't have any of that stuff, folks, how are you going to defend yourselves against against outsiders? Yeah, you might have your own rifle or musket, but what about your neighbors? If they don't own anything like a rifle or a musket, how are they going to defend themselves? I mean, you can't just call them up and say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, get your family over here so that you all can stay with us so that you all won't get attacked by the Indians. We don't have that kind of communication. So, yes, if you're living in the westernmost town of America in 1791, being uh, what we know as Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, then, yes, you've got every reason to be in fear for your own life. And it wasn't just there. There was... um, 
counties, uh, what we know is uh, in present-day West Virginia, there's a county that exists called Ohio County, which is the northernmost county of West Virginia, bordering between Ohio to the west and Pennsylvania to the east. They um, were also in a state of panic, knowing that um, that uh, that Indians uh, not far from the line uh, could come into their uh, town and uh, pretty much destroy it with no one there to defend them. President Washington firmly believed in staying the course with existing policies towards the Indians and land affairs via the Northwest Territory, despite the setback that has happened. The British government, however, is feeling good about this. Uh, they're feeling very good about the fact that the Americans have been defeated. After all, there is a, a presence of, uh, of British troops, I mean, along the Great Lakes and in, really in the Northwest or what we upper Northwest and what we know is uh, present-day Michigan, Wisconsin, and even in uh, Illinois. Uh, but uh, the British are feeling great about this, and you can't blame them. The British government, they, they are proposing to have the Northwest Territory become a separate Indian state nation, meaning that it would be free from Britain and the United States, along with prohibiting further westward settlement, but allow trade to remain in place where there would still be American and British Indian traders um, working which, you know, I guess to them as a compromise. However, um, however, um, the uh, British uh, government um, also um, sought to protect Indian lands from U.S. expansion, which also included protecting Canada from any U.S. invasion. So, you know, this has been a painful um, experiment or experience for this uh, for the United States Army and for the Young Republic, and we and uh, just so that you know, we've um, we've covered um, everything there is to cover in part one of two to uh, recriminations and reversals. Uh, we've certainly covered uh, a lot of um, important information, and when I'm on the air again next, we'll um, talk about the second part of this uh, two-part series of uh, recriminations and reversals. And I will report, uh, or I can tell you all now in the second part, there will be more news to come, but it will be news that will be better in terms of how um, the United States Army is going to go forward in being a better force than it was in the years of 1790 and 1791. And we'll also learn about a general whom leads another expedition into Ohio and will um, and will prevail. Because some of you are probably wondering right now, given that this debacle that's happened, can it get any worse or is there um, a light at the end of the tunnel? Well, I can report to you all that when I'm on the air again next, I will, I'm able to report to you all that there will be a light at, at the end of the road um, so that the United States government does have hope. Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again with you all when the next time I'm, I'm on. And thank you uh, for being such ardent listeners. Without you all, I don't know where I would be, but uh, I want to thank you all for uh, helping me get where I'm at and uh, for you know being um, such ardent listeners. Uh, continue to do what you all do best and uh, listen and uh, share what you've learned with others so that they can become um, well-rounded like you all with um, 
American history. Take care for now and stay safe.